back, Father Kevin. 21st Sunday, Cycle A, um, readings for Cycle A, and uh, once again, terrific readings. And we start again with uh, Isaiah, but this time, chapter 22. Last week, I think it was chapter 56. Can you walk us right. through this? Sure, sure. So this is the first part of Isaiah. You know, scholars will often break the book down into two or even three parts. So this is that first part, and at first it seems obscure. But then once we get to the gospel, we see clearly why the church has chosen this one. It speaks about this man who, as they would call him, the master of the palace. Um, literally in Hebrew, it says the one over the house. But, you know, that's a, a colloquial translation, master of the palace. Shebna, he's important, but he's taken on too much of a sense of self-importance. He's, he's basically trying to usurp the place of the king, the authority of the king. So he had a certain authority and it's going to be taken away from him. The Lord says through Isaiah, it's going to be given to someone named Eliakim. Now, we're not sure who this is. It says son of Hilkiah. There's a couple of Hilkiahs mentioned in the Old Testament. <clears throat> One interesting thing, as we'll see later on, is all of the Hilkiahs are either priests. Uh, two of them are actually chief priests or from a priestly family. So something having to do with the priesthood. Also, to help us later on, it mentions... Uh, the Lord says he's going to gird Eliakim, uh, gird him with your sash. Now, the sash there is basically speaking about the authority that he has. But again, the word there, the underlying word in Hebrew, is a word that's used for the same type of clothing that the priests have on. So there's a sort of a hint that this master of the palace, who was number two in the kingdom, sort of sense like the viceroy, the vizier, right? Um, he was influential, but Shebna was basically putting himself in the place of the king, he'd even already had a tomb prepared for himself in the place that only the kings were, were supposed to be buried in. Uh, so again, this all this authority is going to be taken away from him, given him to Eliakim. When we get to the end of the passage, we really see how this will shed light on the gospel passage. I will place the key of the house of David on Eliakim's shoulder. Apparently, that's where you wore it in that culture at that time is on your shoulder. shoulder. And it's going to give him the authority. When he opens, no one. When he opens, no one shall shut. When he shuts, no one shall open. And again, that all prepares for the gospel. Fantastic. What about the uh, responsorial psalm? So the psalm, especially what I'd like to call everyone's attention to, is in the response. It's going to say, "Lord, your love is eternal." Then it twice has the the mentions the word kindness. The underlying word again, that beautiful word we come to so often, has said. So hard to render into English. It can be merciful love, loving kindness. Some scripture scholars would say the best translation is covenant fidelity. Uh, and so truly, you know, the covenant fidelity of the Lord endures forever. It's eternal. But again, the, the underlying uh, theme is easy to understand. God's love is forever, right? He's faithful to his promises. Great. Great. Um, yeah. So we're still in Romans. Um, chapter 11 this time. Um, and this is one of my favorites. Right. You... So the context is important here. I'll just read out those first phrase and a half. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments, how unsearchable his ways. But this is the buildup in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And now we're halfway through chapter 11. Paul has been making his case for where the Jewish people fit into the plan of salvation now that the, the Gentiles have come. Remember, 
Last uh, Sunday, we heard for the, the call of God is irrevocable, his grace and his call, right? And so Paul, uh, to, to try to unpack it, so to speak, to, to make it make sense, what he's saying is the Lord is so faithful to his covenant, to his promises, that because he promised the 12 tribes of Israel that uh, you know the kingdom would last forever, even though 10 and a half of those tribes from the north had been lost, even though one and a half were exiled into Babylon and so many of them did not return, now in a sense, they're, to put it in modern terms, their DNA is so much spread around that the Lord is now offering salvation to everyone, even the Gentiles, just to make sure that he makes good on his promise. Um, and so he, he finishes that up. And of course, you know, the word doxa in Greek means glory. So he finishes up with a praise of God, giving him glory called a doxology for from him and through him and for him, all things are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. It sounds very similar to what we say at the mass, right? Through him, with him, in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, right? So we hear the echoes of that, the strains of that as Paul finishes up. Uh, this part of chapter 11, and uh, we're uh, more than halfway, you know, about three quarters of the way at this point now through the letter of Paul to the Romans. Okay, and now we come to uh, to a gospel reading that's one of the most uh, discussed in all of Christian literature, um, the uh, reading about the keys. Oh, right. So we come to Matthew 16, that beautiful part of the gospel of Matthew, you know, Chapters 16 and 18, especially, is looking at the organization of the community, as of the church. And so we have, you know, in most of the Gospels, certainly in John, but even now in Matthew, whenever they mention a time or a place, it's usually not a throwaway line. There's usually a meaning for that. So first of all, Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi. So the Caesars, or someone to honor them, would build these towns, these cities in their name. This is the Caesar of Philippi, right? And so... In that area, there's a place, you know, uh, um, Father Yaki, if you ever look up his books, uh, J-A-K-I, a Hungarian uh, priest who you know, escaped after the communist, um, the revolution against communists in 1956 and came to the U.S. He does uh, meditation on this, um, both on the, the keys of the kingdom and the rock. And he says that in that part of the town, first of all, there's this sheer rock that just rises straight up, it looks like from the the ground very near the sea, the shore of the sea. And there's also, that was a place where they had uh, a pagan shrine to the god Pan, P-A-N. We get the word panic from that because people to honor the god would get, you know, some kind of drunken orgy and just go wild and go crazy. But the Jewish people would see it was such a horrible, you know, repulsive uh, form of religion that near that uh, shrine that had been filled with water was considered this swampy thing. And the, the, the cave went down so deep that people even commonly said it went down right into the, to the gates of hell, right into the bowels of the earth, right? And so Father Yaki sort of meditates, you know, perhaps, you know, Jesus was speaking right in front of that huge rock where the shrine to the, the pagan god Pan is. And he begins by asking the disciples in general, who do people say the son of man is? Again, referring to himself in the third person with that phrase, which he loved so much because it was a mysterious that hinted at the humanity and divinity of this person who had been prophesied and he applies it to himself. The answer, you know, maybe John the Baptist um, who had been killed at this point, Elijah, remember he's taken up in the chariots of fire, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he says, who do you say that I am? And you know, it's an interesting, Matthew, Mark and Luke each have this scene each one has Simon Peter responding in a slightly different way. 
which is always good to remember that we always say this is the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark. There might be slight differences in their descriptions of events. And he says, you are the Christ. And of course, they're rendering it in Greek, but it means you're the anointed one. You are the Messiah. But then he adds in the gospel of Matthew, the son of the living God. They were already, of course, waiting for the Messiah, but the huge shock, the, the, the beautiful mystery and surprise of God's plan is that the Messiah would also be the eternal son of God. So then the, the, Jesus answers back to him and he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. You know, sometimes translated as bar Jonah because bar means son of an Aramaic. And so he says, you know, it's not been human beings, the idiomatic ex expression, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly father. He realizes this is a grace from his heavenly father, that he allowed Simon to have that insight. And so he says to him, and it's really at this moment, his name is changed to Peter, even though they sometimes sort of, in an anachronistic sort of way, they begin to call him Peter at the beginning of the gospel. But he says, I say to you, and it's always hard to render this in English, because literally he's saying, I say to you, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Uh, and so, you know, when they take the kepha from, from the Aramaic and they, they bring it into he, to um, Greek, rather, or Latin or the other languages, it takes on either masculine or feminine. And kepha is just kepha. You know, you can have kepha for rock, and it was never known to be a name up to that point. Anytime in the Old Testament scriptures, if rock is applied to any person, the person is God. The Lord is my rock and my salvation, right? You see that repeatedly in the, the Psalms, for example. So now he takes this word kepha, rock, and he says, you are kepha. And on this kepha, I will build my church. When we render into the other languages, we have to use two different words. So they might say, you are Petros, and on this Petra, you know, it might be, you know, Peter, of course, is going to be masculine for the man, but then the, the little rock, in a sense, has got to be in the feminine. But of course, we recall that the Lord was speaking in Aramaic. It's the same word there. And I love to see this because when we look at Peter, we the first thing we think of is a huge rock, right? No, we don't. We think of Peter, remember his denying the Lord under pressure. I, I call him, you know, instead of a rock, he's a pillar of jello, you know. And yet the Lord chooses him because he's going to make him into a rock and he's going to give him a strength that simply will not be his own. So after he says to him, you're a rock and on this rock, I will build my church. The gates of the netherworld, gates of hell, sometimes translated, shall not prevail against it. Again, he may have been speaking in front of this pagan shrine that was had fallen into disuse to the God, pagan God Pan. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now we see why the church has chosen that first reading from Isaiah 22, because the keys symbolize authority. Shebna, or later after him, Eliakim, will wear that key right on his shoulder to show that he's number two in the kingdom, that he's representing the king, that he's the vicar of the king, as we would say that the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That was technical terminology in first century A.D., among the Jewish people for permitting or forbidding. The rabbis, especially the higher rabbis, the, the head rabbi would have a certain authority to do that. The amazing addition, of course, because this has been hinted at, at of course, already in the, the first reading uh, with uh, Shebna and Eliakim, whatever he opens, no one will shut, whatever he shuts, it will be open. But the Lord adds something here, which is simply astounding. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
And I just sometimes meditate on this and I, I just shake my head at the unbelievable humility of God that he would submit himself to the leader and his descendants say, I mean, the, remember the master of the palace, it was not just a person who cares one man. It was, it was an office that was continued on by his successor and the person after him. And so we see that also, of course, in Peter. And of course, Peter, uh, according to tradition, left Jerusalem, became the first bishop or overseer or supervisor of the church in Antioch, finally made his way to Rome. He was, uh, of course, martyred there on the Vatican Hill. He's buried under, right under beneath the, the, um, the Basilica of St. Peter in Rome. And we believe that he is that authority. Now, chapter 18 will bring this out and apply it to the whole group or college of apostles. So we always have that healthy tension, if you will, between the authority of the Holy Father and then the authority of also each individual bishop in his diocese in union with the Holy Father. But still, the meaning is unmistakable that God is so humble. He submits himself to the decisions of our bishops and our Holy Father. Why? I don't know. Sometimes, you know, it's a, every once in a while, you know, I'll see something and, you know, you may hear in some part of the world that or in some time in history that there's been a bishop or a holy father, a pope, that there was an, an initiative now that we know clearly with 2020 hindsight it was a good initiative. And yet the person in the church was given a lot of, you know, flack before they were able to do it. And I'll, I'll always tell people obedience is still always the safest option. I go back. I think I've mentioned it before in this podcast that Beautiful story that I've heard has been attributed to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque in France in the 1670s. Sacred Heart is appearing to her, and he says, I want this devotion to my Sacred Heart. I want the nine first Fridays of the month as a devotion. She goes to her uh, confessor. At first, he doesn't believe it. And the next month next when month. she's talking to the Lord, she says to him, should I go and do it anyway? I mean, if anyone had a reason to disobey their superior at this point, it was St. Margaret Mary. I mean, it's Jesus himself talking to her and appearing to her. And at least the story, the words have come down to us that he answers St. Margaret Mary and says, no, I never bless disobedience. And that's the way of the saints. And then sometimes that's what separates the saints and the sinners, because there have been sometimes people with tremendous charisms in the history of the church wanting to reform. But they finally got exasperated, maybe with, if you will, the human side of the church, as we all can at some moment or another. And they said, that's it. I've had it enough. And they leave and they separate themselves from Peter. They separate themselves from the, the mystical body of Christ. There's, you know, I won't go into details, but something that I was just reading about recently, you know, some religious sisters and, you know, very much being defiant of their bishop. Is he right? Is he wrong? I don't know all the details. I, I won't go into whether he's right or wrong, but I don't believe that they're right in disobeying, right? And even we see some of the saints disobeyed pretty unholy bishops and popes at times. But guess what? Those who obeyed are saints today and those who disobeyed are not. It's true. Yeah, it is. And there's so many, I mean, so many instances you can go all the way through the whole roster of the saints, uh, one after the other. Um, Philip Neri, perfect example. Murray right. of Ars, perfect example. Padre Pio, perfect example. They're they're all perfect examples, right? You're right. That because humility. I always I always tell the story of uh 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 it's either Padre Pio or Jean Vianney recited it's from one of the Desert Fathers, and you know, the story goes, someone came up to him and said, you know, Father, what is the What's the what's the most important and greatest Christian virtue? And they said humility. 
And what's the next? Humility. And what's the next? Humility. Right? Right. And that is underneath the obedience that you're talking about, right? If you don't have humility, you can't obey. Um, <clears throat> but I, I still, I just marvel, you know, in prayer, sometimes I'll say, Lord, how can you be so humble that you, the eternal Godhead, would submit yourself to decisions of not always perfect human beings, right? We all know that. We're never, we're never going to out humble God, remarkably so. True. Absolutely. All right. Thank you for your time as always. Uh, and we'll see you next week.